Welcome to another episode of the Replant Bootcamp Podcast, the Boots on the Ground podcast for replanters by replanters with your host, Bob Bickford and Jimbo Stewart. Here in the trenches with you doing the gritty and glorious work of replanting dying churches. This podcast is sponsored by 180 Digital, the church website and branding partner you need to help move your church forward. Hey, I'm, I'm glad that you're back. You had a vacation though, right? And, I did. Uh, I did. I appreciate you doing some of the editing, posting and oh, all that. Yeah. I had a really good time away from all my responsibilities and just some time with family, although it was a little bit limited because my legs had a second degree sunburn on them from the weekend prior. You said you had some me time, right? Just some mm-hmm. extended Jimbo time. But I'm now officially back in the office and ready to jump back into it all. It's awesome, man. Well, look, I'd like to continue our conversation about the characteristics. We talked about self-awareness before we even jumped into the characteristics, and then we talked about how we're breaking the characteristics down into a head, heart, hands, and habits. One of our previous episodes, we talked about the thinking, the head of a replanter. Today, Bob, I want to talk about the heart of a replanter. What is it about what we do and why we do it? The three main characteristics under heart are gospel orientation, missional focus and emotional intelligence. Now, gospel orientation and missional focus are definitely at the heart of what the replant team at NAM and Clifton and you guys have been trying to talk about for so long, but it wasn't really codified into the original eight characteristics. It was the research of Dr. Stephen Hudson out of Southern Baptist Theological Seminary on his PhD paper that identified through mixed methods these characteristics of gospel orientation and missional focus. This gets down to even how you define success in a replant, which I've always loved Clifton's definition of making disciples that make disciples that make the community noticeably better. Gospel orientation, missional focus really get at that definition. You know, Clifton always is a great wordsmith that really gets us down to the heart of the matter. So I know that we'll probably go through some of the definitions of these in a more full way related to the the survey and the writing that we've done and you've done on these, but helping a church be a church that makes disciples who make disciples that help the community become a noticeably better place. That, that is unambiguous and that's not hard to understand. Now the how to part of it obviously is where you have to bring some, some energy and focus and thought. And to do that, so we may talk a little bit about some of the how to's, uh, in, in what we do. But I think we want to introduce these topics to you, these, these characteristics to you, so that you have a, a grasp and a handle on them. Yeah, so let's start with gospel orientation. Our official definition is gospel orientation refers to aligning the culture and practice of the church in such a way that the core doctrine of the gospel drives its mission and practice in preaching, managing conflict, and leading organizational change. So in other words, it really does need to be about the gospel more than everything. Now, this is one that I know you and I are both really passionate about because this is beyond what we see in a lot of church growth-minded resources out there that really point to just pragmatic ideas. The, now, these pragmatic ideas, I'm not, I'm not against some good pragmatic ideas, but gospel orientation is really this idea that it's not going to be a fad or a gimmick or merely pragmatics that will ever lead us to that true success in a replant. It is going to be aligning the culture and the practice of the church 
with the gospel, making everything kingdom minded. We need to break that down. You know, most of the time, let's go old school church. The gospel is a presentation of the gospel, right? Of who Jesus is, our need for him and what our response is, right? We need to understand that's part of the gospel. But the gospel that transforms us, as Colossians talks about, the gospel that's bearing fruit and continuing to bear fruit, it transforms us. So there are certain church planting networks that did a really, really good job of talking about the, the gospel unto salvation and the gospel leading to transformation. And so I think by and large, the declining churches have not lost the gospel to communicate how we are saved. They have lost the gospel unto transformation. So that, that idea that because I don't earn my salvation and it's a grace gift given to me freely by God's work, not my work, that translates into how I relate to God, which translates into I don't have to be at church every time the doors are open or I don't have to do all these things in order for God to be pleased with me because his, his relationship with, his, with me is based on Christ's righteousness, not my works. I think a lot of the churches that are in decline, that's a new concept for them, right? And how that, how that reorients program at, pro, what they do in terms of programs, what it does in terms of how they approach discipleship, I think are all key factors that we need to be conscious of. I think about what Dr. James Hawkins said to us on the episode where we talked about dealing with racial and ethnic tension in the church. And one of the things that he said that's really stuck in my head ever since was, you have to pastor beyond Sunday morning. If you're really only pastoring Sunday morning, all you're doing is managing a large group event. You're not actually pastoring. And I thought about that because he was talking about in our influence in not just our congregants who show up on Sunday morning, but influencing and equipping them to do the work of ministry in their spheres of influence and in their life as they go out. And I really thought this is, this is really the heart of what it means to do gospel orientation is Mm -hmm. to understand that Sunday morning is a moment to gather and worship the Lord. And it's a part of the discipleship process of the church, which needs to be really the thing that drives what we do is making disciples. Are we seeing people transformed more and more into the image of Christ? Or are we just gathering loyal listeners that are just going to gather and hear what we have to say and give an amen? Mm -hmm. And so true replanting is not about the amount of people that attend your church, but it's about the amount of transformation in their lives. Yeah, absolutely. So are we more unified? Are we less divisive? Are we not not as cranky in family business meetings? Are we uh, repenting of sin? Are, is our, how we speak to one another, etc.? Which if you find a church in decline, you, you usually find a church that struggles in those things that I just mentioned, right? They're, they're at each other's throats or they're cranky with one another and they just, they excuse it. Oh, well, that's just old Bill, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, mm-hmm. Is old Bill, does he understand who Jesus is? And then is he being transformed by the gospel? Like apparently based on the fruit of the spirit in business meeting, not, not so much, right? So how's the gospel transforming old Bill, but everybody in the congregation and also the structures. I think we can't, we cannot underestimate the need for um, the gospel informing the structures of the church as well. 
Yeah, it's the gospel informing how we think about church governance. It's the gospel informing how we think about conflict resolution. It's the gospel that informs how we uh, treat others and re- relate to each other, how we understand what we're doing when we gather, and knowing that it's about God and his glory and not us and our preferences. And and so this this really boils down to kind of the heart behind what you do. Now, this becomes significantly important in a replant or any church because you're going to hit a moment where you are going to really struggle if all you're measuring is the pragmatics. If mm-hmm. it, no matter how successful quote unquote your church becomes numerically, if you talk to any pastor who's been through that, who has pastored a church that has grown numerically, they will always tell you you'll never reach that number where you're satisfied. And, and so it's not that we should ignore statistics and ignore numbers, but when we're focused on making disciples and, and seeing transformation happen in those stories, it really can motivate you to stay strong and continue when maybe the numbers don't look as great. But the other problem is the numbers can look really good, but you're not seeing transformation. And so it's why it's so important that everything be oriented aligned with the gospel. Now that focuses a lot on what we do systems and processes, even inside the church that, that should be a part of a discipleship process, intentionally moving people in transformation to become more and more like Christ. Now, as we do that, a natural outflow of that should be a missional focus. Our next characteristic under heart where we see people equipped and mobilized. And so our official definition of missional focus is replanters with a missional focus, make it a priority to equip and mobilize the congregation to live their life on mission in their community and beyond for the sake of Christ in his gospel. So gospel orientation is about the why behind everything you do in your church, whereas missional focus is about making sure that we're actually mobilizing and sending our people out on mission, which is, again, I want to point back again to Clifton's definition, right, is success and replant is when we're making disciples that make disciples that make the community a noticeably better place. And so a natural result of a good discipleship process should make an impact on the missional context that the church finds itself in. Yeah, so this is a really hard one for the long-declined church that has always operated on the mission is for me to invite someone to come hear the gospel at my church in order to understand what it means to be saved. So come to church, hear this guy, come to church, do this program, or the mission becomes we empower others to take the gospel around the world and in North America and plant churches. So the mission has become something that I do almost secondhand or passively. And I watch someone else or equip someone else to do the mission. So talk about a, a radical reorientation of mission in some, someone's mind. Take somebody that's been in the church for 30, 40 years and explain to them that when Jesus gives us the great commission, it says go into all the world. It actually means you and me. And it involves us leaving the church building, connecting with the lost people and sharing the gospel with them and making the community a noticeably better place through relief efforts and mission, et cetera. 
historically we've seen so many different things in the church that have been the major cultural drivers of why churches have grown or what the focus of church has been over time. And one of the things that we're seeing now is it's far more important and necessary for a church to have a really strong missional focus and make sure that we are mobilizing people to go well beyond just the pew and actually interact with people out in the real world. Whereas maybe 60 years ago, church growth, honestly, in many ways, was as simple as having the church in the right location because Mm -hmm. it was a matter of needing churches where there weren't. And so you became the primary option in that community. And people culturally knew that you went to church in the 1940s In the 1950s, Americans went to church. That was part of what it meant to be an American, was to go to church. And so growth wasn't much more than just proximity. As long as you were in the right location for where there was a need, then people would attend because that's what people did. But that's no longer how our culture operates, which we can bemoan and talk about maybe that's a bad thing or maybe it's a good thing. But what we know now is... Right now, if you want to see your church replanted, you want to be an effective replanter, you have to have a missional focus because your people won't do what you aren't doing. You have Mm -hmm. to lead out in being missional in your neighborhood with your community and with your spheres of influence. And you've got to equip and empower the saints in your church to do that work of ministry. Mm, Absolutely. Great point. So the next one is emotional intelligence. Now this is one that was already in the original eight. And we found it also backed up very much so in the evidence of what Dr. Stephen Hudson did in his research. Our official definition is emotional intelligence is the capacity to be aware of, control, and express one's own emotions and to handle interpersonal relationships judiciously and empathetically. Now, again, that's a long definition. And a lot of these intentionally, we want to be as comprehensive as we can as you're trying to think through what that means. But emotional intelligence, as some have defined it, really is just a mixture of self-awareness, social awareness, and self-regulation. Being aware of who you are, how you're perceived by others, being aware of things that are going on around you socially, and having self-control. Uh, Self-regulation would be kind of the official term, but as we see in the word of God, self-control, that fruit of the spirit of knowing what is appropriate in uh, emotional reactions to things and situations. The real simplified thought that I have in in thinking on this topic uh, or on this characteristic is why do I feel the way I feel? Why do I think the way I think? And why do I respond the way I respond? Mm Mm-hmm. So there's a lot underneath all those things, right? Because put in a situation where it's tense and maybe you're questioned or uh, maybe someone isn't buying what you're selling as a replanter in terms of your vision or you're, you're you know, ad- advocating for a particular step or a change, that's going to impact you in a particular way and it's going to feel a certain way. And there are going to be many instances throughout your life history that have caused you to feel the same way. And if you haven't gotten understanding on them, you might bring a thousand watts to a 40 watt problem. That, that becomes a problem for you in a leadership way, right? So um, I think, why do I respond the way I respond? Well, it's all built on 
how I feel about myself and maybe some of the experiences I had growing up, maybe I struggled to be heard or maybe I was always heard. And, and what I learned is, is if the louder you talk, the more people will go into submission and the more likely you are to win your idea, then I'm going to be loud and I'm going to be boisterous. Right. Or if I'm going to try to reason with somebody and maybe I grew up in a home where it's like, um, if I just presented my case with all the right facts and then all the right emotional appeals, then somebody would receive it. Mm-hmm. Then if somebody is not responding in a rational way to me and somebody's responding irrationally, then it's going to evoke a response in me. Um, so that, that, that takes a lot of introspection and a lot of self-awareness to understand those things. It takes a, a bit of being able to look in at yourself. And like we talked about earlier, several episodes ago in self-awareness and when I was in seminary, there was a required course that everyone had to take called interpersonal relationship skills. And I don't know if you had to take that when you were in seminary, but I remember in the introduction to the class, the professor said, we started requiring this course because we would send pastors that were trained theologically, they were trained in leadership, and they would go into these churches and the churches would call us and go, hey, you sent us this pastor and he can preach and he can lead Sunday school and everything else, but he has no idea how to talk to people or have relationships with people. And apparently the seminary got enough phone calls like that, that they felt it necessary to add a class called interpersonal relationship skills. And one of the things we had to do in that class was we had to ask a series of questions of family members, friends, and coworkers that could give us enlightening feedback on how we are perceived by others in our interactions. And that was a really great exercise for me to understand um, how I come across in conversation, how I am in my interactions with others. And that self-awareness piece has to be then tempered with self-regulation, self-control, so that you know. So I know I have a tendency to dominate conversations. And I've learned that over time. I have a tendency in my flesh to come across as arrogant and like I have it all figured out because when I state an idea, I state it with passion and confidence and excitement and that can come across as I am right and you are wrong. And I honestly was not aware of that until others let me know. And so self-awareness was step one, but then self-regulation becomes step two where I learn I need to sit back I need to analyze my thoughts. Maybe I don't have to speak so passionately and so excited about every idea until I really have figured that idea out. And I am. And then it's a, then it's an asset. And then when I am really, truly excited and passionate about an idea, that's an asset that I can bring to the table by speaking with passion and conviction in a persuasive way. But if I say everything in a persuasive and passionate way, then no one ever knows when to believe me or when to wait until I figured things out. And so you have to learn how to regulate that. Yeah. If you highlight every sentence on a page, nothing is highlighted. (laughs) So emotional intelligence is also needed, Bob, when you are inevitably going to deal with other people who aren't emotionally intelligent. Wow. You've got to be the one who has emotional intelligence as the pastor. In those interactions, you have to be the one who is able to regulate. 
your emotions, who is able to regulate your responses. And when yeah. they, they escalate, you don't need to escalate in return. Yeah. Man, that's a hard one, it, particularly if you're passionate about a topic and a subject and somebody speaks with a certain level of certainty and conviction that that they know what's right and you just, it frustrates you. So let me give you an instance where I, I really was struggling. The, the other day we were doing a consultation, our good buddy, Evan Skelton, you know, Evan, um, planter here in St. Louis. So we were doing a consultation and I kid you not five minutes into the conversation, one of the older church members there uh, at the church we were consulting said, well, I just don't like churches that change Baptists out of their name. And I just think they're all compromising and, they're going to compromise on doctrine and they're opening the door to liberalism, et cetera, et cetera. Right. So they didn't just say it. They said it with an attitude and with the body language of uh, I am right and try to uh, dissuade me. Right. Man, I, I could feel, I could feel the energy just, just rising up in me. And I said, um, um, can I just ask you a question? Is that based on factual knowledge or is that based on feeling? And then I just remained quiet. Mm-hmm. Right? And, uh, and so they kind of sat back and looked at the, you know, up at the ceiling and said, well, I guess that's based on feeling. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like, okay, all right. And then we went on, but it was kind of one of those where I was like ready to, uh, I was kind of ready to do Jesus in the temple moment right there, five minutes in, like start flipping tables over and declaring stuff. Like, I mean, that, that was just really like, yeah, that, that kind of stuff drives me absolutely crazy. I had just to, to regulate in that moment and think, what's the best question to ask in this moment? That's a great, that's a great response. It's not surprising that Jesus often responded with questions. <laughs> yes. and, 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 and here's why that's always so significant to me. It's Jesus is not without any knowledge, right? He's, I mean, he is God. And, and, and he has full access to whatever knowledge, right? So there are times when Jesus responds to questions that haven't even been said out loud, right? So he sees it in their heart and their soul. Yeah. So it's not that Jesus lacks knowledge when he asks questions. A lot of times there's just wisdom in asking questions and in that process of helping people see things. So the last characteristic here, if you are married, if your heart is going to be in the replant, if you're going to have the heart of a replanter, that means you have a heart for your spouse and that your spouse has a heart for replanting and your spouse has a heart for you. And there's going to need to be spousal perseverance. Now, my wife loves to point out that when Nan lists out the characteristics for a church planter who is starting something from scratch, they call it spousal cooperation. Like, hey, we got to be on the same team here. But for the replanter, they just call it spousal perseverance. Like, don't quit and don't divorce him, right? It's your, you're already in a covenant relationship, so you are, you're bound. <laughs> so we just need you to stick it out for a little while. Okay? Just slug it out. Yeah, like, yeah here, here's where this one's really key. So we always talk about the infamous year three in a replanter's experience. And by and large, if you're a replanter, that means you're going to endure a lot of hardship over a longer period of time. And it means your spouse has to be okay with that. So but I would often check against what we were experiencing in terms of the conflict and the struggle. And I would ask my wife, do we still keep going? Like, are you still in this? 
right? Man, there were days, Jimbo, I was, I had, I really thought about going and getting the job application for Quick Trip and filling it out <laughs> and having it ready to go and then going home and asking my wife if she was still in. If she said she wasn't in, then I would have turned it in that day. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I'd be like, I'm done. But, but here's the deal. And Mark talk, Clifton talks about this. We've seen replanters whose wives are out. At that point, the replanter is in a critical place in space. It's likely that he's not going to be able to stick it out. Because if his wife is done, she's done. And... And that's why it's so critical for a replanter who is married for his wife to have a commitment to stick it out when it gets hard. Absolutely. The official definition is a replanter's wife possesses a love for Jesus and the church. And she is emotionally and spiritually prepared for the challenges that come with replanting a dying church. And this is absolutely crucial. If, if your marriage isn't going to survive this ministry endeavor, then you don't need to do it. Um, a, a success at the church and a failure at home is a ministry failure. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Jimbo, I think it's important. I don't want, I want to mention this before I forget it, but the replanters wives have a great resource in the Facebook group, the replant wives, Facebook group. That is amazing and awesome. We'll put a link to it. You have to have a single account on Facebook. So if you have an account with your husband, you won't be allowed to join because it's it's literally for women only, and yep. uh, and it's private. Things that are discussed there are not discussed outside of that group, and and so there's some great interaction that takes place on a regular basis for that group. So if, if we have some replanter wives out there, particularly husbands, if you're listening and your wife struggled to to be able to have a safe place to talk about what she's experiencing, that's one great place that she'll get some sage advice from from ladies who've been. Uh, in replanting a little bit longer who can help her navigate some of those challenges. Definitely follow that link. I know that's been very beneficial for my wife in this journey. If you had to throw out one or two other resources for the heart category, Bob, what, what would you throw out? Yeah. So gosh, I mean, there's tons and tons of books that I just was thinking about and, and kind of making note of, uh, center church by Tim Keller is a great church is great for a gospel orientation uh, I would recommend that for mission. I would think of missional Renaissance. It's an older book by Reggie McNeil, but I've always liked the way Reggie thinks. He thinks a little differently and always challenges me. So I, I think that would be a good one. And then I'd throw a practical one to equip your folks with, I would say gospel hospitality by Rosaria Butterfield mm -hmm. is a great one for missional focus because it, it really helps people understand how the home and the dinner table and kind Jesus saturated friendship with a lost person can have an impact in, in helping them. All right. So a few I would throw out is uh, no silver bullets by Daniel M is a really good book about creating a discipleship culture in your church. Gospel driven church by Jared Wilson is good for gospel orientation. One of the big ones for me on just the heart in general and how we define success, liberating ministry from the success syndrome by Kent Hughes is a really helpful resource for that as well. And I'm going to tell you about another one, Bob, that is not going to be released until later this year or early next year that I've had the great fortune of getting to be in a cohort with the author called Future Church by Will Mancini. And I've been in that cohort for a couple months now as we've been walking through the material 
And it's, it is a great resource on all of this that we talk about with missional focus and gospel orientation and some great illustrations that he uses there, but it won't be out till later this year, beginning of next year. And so, and then as far as spousal perseverance, don't wait until your marriage is falling apart to go to marriage counseling. Mm -hmm. Um, Just like you shouldn't wait till your car is smoking to take it to the oil change. (laughs) Right. Like don't, don't be, don't be scared of marriage counseling. It's a good thing. It is man. And so here's the deal. I think it should just be a normal expectation that every pastor and their spouse has a good Christian counselor that they see from time to time. Mm-hmm. Like you just, you need that. And, and I, I remember before I ever went to counseling, I was afraid of it. And then after I went to it a couple of times, I was like, Oh, like that's a good thing. And yeah. And I would say this, if you find a counselor that's a little different that you don't connect with, keep searching. Don't give up on counseling if you have a, a not great experience with a counselor. And then the, the other thing I would add is it, it may take a while for you to get to the root issues that need to come out. And so mm-hmm. give it some time. Uh, my, my ballpark would say I give it minimum three to six months uh, time to, to really let it have its good work in your life. Yeah. All right, guys, tune in next time and we'll be diving into the hands and the work ethic and, the, and what it looks like to be an effective replanter. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Replant Bootcamp Podcast, a resource for replanters by replanters. If you enjoyed this episode or found it to be helpful for you and your ministry, please help us get the word out by subscribing, sharing, and leaving us a review on your favorite podcast listening platform. This podcast is sponsored by 180 Digital. 180 Digital is a team of design, development, and marketing experts that love working with churches, big and small. Check out 180.church, O-N-E-E-I-G-H-T-Y.church to learn more about how 180 can help your church move forward.